Bible, if you would join me in Matthew 13, verse number 24. Matthew 13, we're going to read verse 24 down to verse 30. Pick back up in verse 36 down to verse 43 in this parable called the parable of the wheat and tares. Matthew 13, verse 24. The Bible says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. Servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while, we, while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36 goes on to say in the explanation of this, then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the terrors of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And Father, that is our prayer today, that you would answer, that we would have ears to hear. Grant us a heart to pursue, to perceive, to grasp, to love and cherish the word of God that is able to save and sanctify. Thank you, Father, for your word. Truly, men of old have longed to see these things which we have seen and have not seen them. You have given us the riches of your truth, and I pray that you would teach us today. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be the preacher today, that you would allow me to speak only what you would have me to speak. Glorify your own name through all that's said and done. And if anyone today doesn't know Christ, may this be the day of their salvation. We ask it in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. One of the big problems in America today is identity theft, and some of you have experienced the frustration and the pain of what that can cause. There's been a 584% increase in identity theft in America over the last 20 years. In 2021 alone, identity thieves stole around $52 billion from Americans. About one-third of Americans have had their identity stolen. And this can be a very damaging thing to people. It is a huge problem in this country, 
But not only is it a problem in the physical world, but it's also a problem in the spiritual world. Jesus taught that people would steal his identity. Matthew 24, verse 4, he says, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many, many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. It's going to be an effective tool of the enemy. He taught that there would be false prophets who would dress themselves as sheep, but they're actually wolves. In Matthew 7, 15, he said, beware of false prophets. They come to you not looking like sheep, but they come looking like, or come looking like wolves. They come looking like sheep. They want you to think that there's something they're not. Paul warned the apostles' identities would also be stolen. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. This imitation, this counterfeit, for no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great marvel, it's no incredible thing that his ministers would be transformed as ministers of righteousness, but their end shall be according to their works. If you were not here last this past Wednesday, uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message I preached on those three verses. I highlighted three ways to identify true and false preachers and teachers and the very important truths to know. Now, in the parable before us, Jesus teaches that one of Satan's greatest tactics in keeping people from entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ to know the Lord in salvation is to create a counterfeit Christianity a counterfeit Christ to get as close to what is real and true as possible, but not actually being what is true and real. Revelation 12.9 says that Satan deceives the whole world. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul warned the Corinthians, he says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, we are not ignorant of his devices. The second parable that Jesus gives here in Matthew 13 is a parable to expose the intentional work of Satan to create a counterfeit Christianity that looks like Christianity in Christ, but is not the real thing. It's called the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, wheat is a good crop that gives grain that is very beneficial and can be used for product and food. The other is called tares. This is our present-day barley or darnel seed. It almost looks identical to wheat, but they are not wheat. Rather, they are weeds, and I have a picture of these up here. You can see this is the wheat, uh, and this is the tear. Very, very similar, very, very much alike. And so it would be hard to identify them as being separate, especially when they're all sewn together. And they're imposters of what is true. I think it's an incredible thing to consider that in the second major parable that Jesus gives here in Matthew 13, telling us what the kingdom would be like, we see that Satan is going to attack and seek to stop the advancement of God's work, not by fighting against Christianity from the outside, but trying to distort Christianity from the inside. It is an attack against Christianity from within. They say that Though Rome defeated the Greeks militarily, which is true, the Greeks defeated Rome morally. It's, it's a fascinating study that in the first 500 years of Rome's history, there is not recorded one single divorce. Rome was extremely moral. 
until Greek culture invaded. And they were absolutely devastated from the inside. By the way, the same thing's happening in America. It is not external attack that's going to destroy America. It's the destruction from within. The heart and soul of a nation begins to deteriorate. And Satan knows that he cannot defeat truth, so he seeks to corrupt the truth. In the Old Testament, the Midianites hired Balaam to curse the Jews. God would not let Balaam curse the Jews. And so they said, well, what can we do? And Balaam said, well, I can't curse the Jews because God won't let me do that. But the way you can destroy them is by causing God to turn against them. And the way that can happen and bring God's judgment on his own people, he says, get all your women to go down there and prostitute themselves and, and draw them into lust and draw them into relationships and marriages and create pagan infiltration through lust of the flesh. And that's what Balaam advised the Midianites to do. And in the New Testament, you see that called the doctrine of Balaam in 2 Peter 2, Jude 11, Revelation 2, 4 at the church at Pergamos. And basically what the doctrine of Balaam is, is this in the New Testament. It is saying that you can be a Christian, but you can mix the world into it as well. You can marry the church with the world and bring them together. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Now, the method of Satan to stop the advancement of the work of God on earth through his people is not to persecute or kill them, uh, which he would do that at times. But you see in the first century, persecution did not stop the advancement of Christianity. It actually caused it to be inflamed and to spread. It wasn't until Constantine legalized Christianity and, and also enforced it to be so, and, and were even putting people to death if they did not convert. That is what destroyed Christianity in the advancement of what it was doing. That, it didn't totally destroy it, but it caused the advancement to be greatly hindered. By the way, that's when the Catholic Church was launched, when the state married the church, and that's what you had. But in verse 24... Uh, we see here this morning, uh, through verse 30, the parable of the tares and wheat. And uh, today we're going to look at the parable, the meaning of the parable, and then we're going to look at the application of this. Uh, this is such an important thing because what Jesus said would happen 2,000 years ago has happened the last 2,000 years. It's going on today. And so let's look at the parable. Now, verse 24 says, Another parable put he forth unto them. The word another is the Greek word alas. Another has two Greek words you could translate from alas and heteros. Heteros is another of a different kind. Alas is another of the same kind. He says, he gave another of the same kind of parable unto them, another parable that was like the previous parable. In other words, he's stacking these parables on top of each other, revealing what the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom of God is like. Now, the parable is a good follow-up to the parable of the soils that we talked about last Sunday. If you weren't here last Sunday, I don't have time to review that because I always have more information to tell you than I have time. That cursed red clock in the back stares at me the entire service. And so we saw last time the parable of the four soils. And we saw the first three soils were not truly saved there were three soils that were not true Christians. Though they appeared to be, at times, Christians, at least soil two and three, they had no lasting fruit and they fell away. Only the fourth soil, the good soil, reflected true salvation, which produced lasting 
fruit. Now in the parable before us, we have Jesus now taking the truth of the previous parable and applying it to the world. In the previous parable, Jesus spoke of one sower and one seed. And in this parable, he speaks of two sowers and two seeds, a good seed and a bad seed and a good sower and an evil enemy sower. The previous parable taught us that there would be bad soils that hinder the work of the gospel. And here we see that there is bad seed that is hindering the advancement of the gospel. So you go from bad soils to bad seeds. The kingdom of God would not only face challenges from the sinfulness of men's heart that would not receive the gospel like it should, but also those who would receive a bad seed into their heart. So it becomes even greater problems. You go from people who are deceived into thinking they're saved in last week's parable to now people who think they're deceived into thinking they're saved after having received an altered message, a corrupted gospel message. Have you ever talked to someone who's received a false gospel, who thinks they're saved because they're a part of a church or they received a, a false teaching from some group? And, and, and listen, there are a lot of false churches, of false teachers, and it's really across the board, but there are some that have a wholesale false gospel and false message. They poison it. It's better to believe in nothing than to believe in a false gospel. It's, it's easier to, con, to win somebody over to Christ if they believe nothing than if they believe something that's false. In the previous parable, the danger was the type of soil to make sure your heart was good, that you have ears to hear, that you have a desire to understand. And here, the danger is that you would be exposed to what's false, what's not in the Word of God, what's added to the Word of God, and it would corrupt you from the inside. And when you get something planted inside of you, you have to uproot that. Now, the Lord uses a common phrase to introduce this comparison. In verse 24, he said, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto. And he uses that phrase, phrase seven times in this chapter as he presents seven different parables to illustrate what the kingdom of God would be like. In verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. And so these parables are ways to put the kingdom of God, this spiritual realm and rule of God on display through physical comparisons. He wants to show us what we cannot see by showing us what we can see and putting it on display through that physical illustrator. Now notice what the Lord says in verse 34 and 5. He says, all things... All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spake he not unto them that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. And then he says, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Do you understand the weight and value of what's being unpacked for you? This is, this is what God has kept from the foundation of the world. Abraham didn't know this. Moses didn't know this. David did not know this. Solomon and Daniel, they did not know the weight of all that we get to understand in the New Testament revelation. That's why he says back in Matthew 13, 17, Verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them and hear those things which you hear. And have not heard them. 
Let me give you an overview of this parable, and then we'll look at its meaning. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man which sowed good seed in his field. So we see a farmer sowing seed in a field that belongs to him. It's called his field. After he sows the seed, he rests for the night. And while he's resting at night, he has an enemy that comes and decides to do him a great injustice by sowing tares among the wheat. The enemy performs this at night in the cover of dark, cleverly, deceitfully, and he leaves without anybody detecting him. Now, tares, it's a Greek word, zizanion, it describes a troublesome weed that grew up in different grain fields, nearly indistinguishable from wheat, as we saw the picture a moment ago. Uh, they were, th- this was a big enough deal in Rome that they actually had to pass laws to keep people from doing this to people that they did not like. And so the men ask if they should uproot the tares, but the owner says, don't do that for a couple of reasons. One, you can't tell which is which until they fully ripened. And then the, the root systems actually grow together. So if you uproot one, then you're going to end up damaging the good fruit. And so the tares were brought all the way to the point of harvest. And then you bring up all of the harvest, you uproot all of them, and then you pass the one off to the other. And, and if they did not separate the wheat from the tear, the grain of the tares was a little black seed, and the grain of the wheat was a white, larger white fruit seed that would be in that grain. And if you didn't separate those, if you mixed in the, if you ate the grain from the tares, what would happen is it would cause you to be dizzy, nauseous, and it could even be fatal uh, if you ingested too much of that. So, At the end of this, they would separate them, and then he says, take the tares and burn them. Now, the question is, what does this mean? And that brings me to my second point today, the meaning of the parable. And Jesus gives us that in verse 36 down to verse 43. If you notice, the ones who desired to know the parable is found in verse 36. It says, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Questions separate those who just read the Bible from those who study the Bible. If you are a student of the Bible, you will ask questions and you will seek answers. If you do not do that, then you do not study. One of the benefits of this LBC 242 that we're launching tonight is you will be pressed into on your own time to study the Bible, and that will be extremely beneficial. There are two things that you must have in order to grow in the Word of God. You have to have a plan to read, and you have to have accountability. If you remove those things, uh, you will find yourself stunted, and so we will provide that through our 242 groups that you could be a part of. So the first thing that I want to ask is, what is the field? What is the field? Uh, You have a sower, you have a field, you have two sowers, you have two kinds of seeds. What do they represent? What's the tear? What does that represent? Who is the enemy? What is the harvest? Who are the reapers? Uh, what, What is this talking about? Well, the first question is, what is the field? And many commentators say that the field represents the church in the parable, uh, that Jesus is highlighting how Satan will come in and plant false believers and imposters, uh, counterfeit Christians inside the church. Now, it is true that unbelievers will come into the church, and some who think they're saved not really be saved. That can happen inside of churches. But the previous parable actually highlighted that reality. 
Jesus here is not, in fact, referring to the church. Verse 38 tells us what the field is. Verse 38 says, the field is the what? The world. Now, that Jesus knew what the word for church is. He could have said ecclesia, but he doesn't use that Greek word. He calls it the world. The, fur, the, the field is not simply confined to the church. What he's saying is deception, counterfeit Christianity would be a worldwide problem. This would, this would be propagated all over the world. Also, it is to note that the world belongs to Jesus. Verse 24 says it is his field. In Psalms 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell therein. So the field is the world. Secondly, who are the two sowers? The first sower is in verse 37. It says, He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. Now, who is the Son of Man? It's Jesus Christ. That word is used 88 times in the New Testament in reference to Christ, 83 of which Jesus uses it to refer to himself. And he uses it as a way to show his humanity, his identification, and his humility that he is the perfect man, that he is the second Adam who came to redeem fallen mankind. But Son of Man also was a messianic title. Daniel 7.13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, a name for God the Father, and they brought him near before him. And so Jesus is the sower here. He is the Son of Man. He is the only sower, in fact, in this story. Lockyer, in his commentary, says, Here the sower is Jesus only. You need to understand, if you are saved today, if you are born again, if you're a child of God, you are saved because someone chose to share the gospel, but ultimately Christ implanted that seed in your heart, and He's the one who brought you to salvation. He enlightened your heart. He redeemed you. I heard that wonderful testimony in the early service, and in this service, Brittany, just such a powerful testimony. My heart is so full from that. And it was Christ that saved her. It was Christ that brought her into his family and made her a child and daughter of the king. What a blessing. Secondly, we see not only sower number one, but sower number two is the enemy. Verse 25 calls him the enemy. Verse 28 calls him the enemy. Verse 38 calls him the wicked one. Verse 39 says the enemy that sowed them is the diabolos. A Greek word for the devil, the slanderer, the one who trips up, the one who wants to get you caught up in error. And notice the method he goes while they're asleep. He works deceitfully behind the scenes. Now, what are the two seeds and what do they produce? Well, the first seed, he says, is a good seed that the Son of Man sows. In verse 38, tells us the good seed, it says, are the children of the kingdom. If you're saved, you have received the engrafted Word of God that is able to save you, as 1 Peter 1.23 says. You belong to God. You received the Word of God with a pure heart, and you're the true children of Christ. Now, what are the tares? Verse 38 goes on to say, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. If you are not a believer, if you are not saved, the Bible teaches that you are a child of Satan. 
That may sound offensive, but every one of us before we were saved were either a child of God or a child of Satan. Before we were saved, we were all children of the devil, the Bible teaches. Jesus even told the religious leaders of his day in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. And so the tares represent those who are unsaved. They are the product, friends, of a false gospel, a false message, a false salvation. And you need to understand the people who have received that false gospel think that they're saved. The tares think that they're actually wheat. They think that they're going to heaven. Do you know Jesus taught the majority of people who think they're going to heaven or not? Jesus said, broad is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Now, the broad path doesn't say highway to hell. You know, ACDC probably is alone on wanting to be on the highway to hell. People aren't that foolish. People don't sign up to go to hell. The the broad path doesn't say way to hell. The broad path says the way to heaven. The broad path says this is the way to get to the kingdom. They look at the narrow path as being the narrow-minded bigots. They're the closed mind, and let me say this, you know who the most narrow-minded person that ever lived was? It was Jesus Christ. Jesus came to the earth and said, basically, everything that I say is true, and if you disagree with me, you're always wrong. Right? Is he right? Yes. That's called absolute reality in flesh. That's called Heaven's truth brought to earth. And praise God, he's not a watered-down speaker like our politicians. It's like, where do they stand? I don't know. They don't know. Amen. That's one thing I love about the Bible. It's so clear. You just read it, and it's like, well, that's, that's there. There it is. Right? Instead of what it was. But you need to understand, false gospels have permeated the world. And they were also inflicting the early church. In Galatians 1, it became a problem at the church at Galatia. Paul says in Galatians 1, 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you, would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be anathema. It means let him be sentenced to hell forever. If an angel from heaven came and preached another gospel, let that angel go to hell forever. And and the way that Jews would emphasize something is through repetition. So verse 9, he says, as we said before, so say we now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed or anathematized. Today, false gospels are proclaimed by groups like Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, certain charismatic groups. I was, had, a young, had a man today in class, he said, you know, I went to a care, uh, churches growing up in Pentecostal groups, not all of them teach this, but some do, that uh, he said, they told me unless I speak in tongues, I'm not saved. I, I said, I, I had dealt at different times in some of those realms, grew up Pentecostal, and, and, and they believe that you must do that to be saved. Well, if that's the case, I'm not saved. Amen. 
And I could talk right now for about five hours on what tongues actually mean, but we don't have time for that. And uh, we all have lunch coming, right? There are those who are inside of also Catholic and Orthodox circles who add tradition. Some of them add works and different things. And maybe you've grown up in some of those areas. You say, what, what, why, do you, um, why do you teach us that uh, we have to pray to saints? If you pray to a saint, that means that saint must be omniscient. Because you can't have people praying to saints all over the world and that one saint not be omniscient. And where does that ever found in the Bible? Well, it's not. And if you tell me in a court of Mormonism that I need to be baptized in one of the 120 uh, Mormon temples or be married in one of them as well in order to get to the highest heaven, uh, where is that found in the Bible? It's not found in the Bible. Uh, that's, that's added information. That was an angel. You know, Mormonism was birthed because an angel Moroni came to Joseph Smith and gave him new revelation from heaven. So they have on their Bible another Bible that's about twice as thick, and it has, they say, more revelation. Well, the problem with that is when you get to Revelation 22, which is the last chapter in the Bible, verse 18 and 19, it says, if do not add to the words of this book or take them away, and if you add to them or take them away, these judgments are going to come on you. And what you find is groups like that, and the people that are in those systems think they're wheat, but they've ingested a bad seed. And Jesus taught that this would permeate the world. And it has been so problematic. 2 Corinthians 11. And you say, well, I can't believe you would name groups. I'm naming churches in the New Testament as well. Galatia, the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve or tricked and deceived Eve through his subtlety. So your minds will be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. Jesus saves in Jesus alone. We believe in sola fide. By grace you are saved through faith. The Roman Catholic Church anathematizes sola fide. They, they accursed us to hell for believing that. That is in their teachings. They've never recanted that position. If that's true, then, so if, then, then they believe what we teach is a completely heretical false gospel. That's why that baptism's added to salvation, according to the Roman Catholic Church. Why do you baptize infants? To remove original sin. Can you show me one verse in the BIBLE that teaches that? Because I've read this several times. Not one place. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm trying to show you that there are bad seeds being planted. And if a pastor doesn't call out some things that are dangerous, it's easy for sheep to wander into the dangerous seeds. That they think there's things that they have to add to. No, there's nothing you add. Paul said to the early church at Galatia, he said in chapter 5, he says, I'm afraid of you because you're, you're adding circumcision to Christ. And if you add circumcision to Christ, Christ doesn't profit you anything. You know what, you know what took the place of circumcision in the New Testament? Baptism. It would be like saying, if you believe in Jesus plus you have to be baptized to be saved, then Christ doesn't profit you. You can add nothing to him. Christ saves in Christ alone. There's nothing you can add to improve. Any additions to Christ subtracts it. In the Old Testament, I was sharing this with my family last night in our journal entries. God says, Moses, I want you to make an altar unto me of field stones. And he says, do not carve those stones, because if you carve them, you will pollute them. 
Let nature's carving work, my handiwork, be sufficient. Because when men try to improve the work of God, they corrupt it and pollute it. You know what men would have done? They would have turned those rocks and stones into images. They would have, paganism would have crept in. Men have the, we do that all the time. And I wonder how many sanctuaries are polluted with images of heaven. And God says, don't bring them into my sanctuary. The danger of such things. Listen, Satan is planting false believers all over the world. They're both outside the church and inside the church. Counterfeit Christianity is his desire Think of how Satan keeps people from the gospel using the tactic of false Christians who say they're Christians. How many have heard somebody say this? I'm not going to church. I'm not going to be a Christian. I don't want to believe in that Christianity stuff because I know too many hypocrites. Raise your hand if you ever had somebody tell you that. I don't believe in Christianity because of hypocrites. Well, let me give you a word of wisdom concerning counterfeit Christianity. Don't let counterfeit Christians or hypocrites keep you from Christ and the truth. First of all, the counterfeit Christian is a confirmation of the worthwhileness of Christianity. One thing that counterfeits prove is that whatever is real is worth counterfeiting. For example, nobody does a counterfeit plastic bag. Nobody creates a counterfeit gum wrapper. But they do have counterfeit $20 bills. Where do they do that? Because it's valuable. Now, if you found a counterfeit bill, you wouldn't be like, I have a counterfeit bill. This thing's a phony. I, I, I'm done with money. I'm not going to have anything to do with money because I found one that's a hypocrite. <laughs> you see the foolishness? Every hypocrite, every counterfeit Christian and preacher is a great confirmation that Satan knows the real thing is that valuable. That's what he knows. He wouldn't counterfeit it otherwise. Not only are counterfeit Christians confirmation of the value of Christ in true Christianity, but secondly, the counterfeit Christian is a confirmation of the inspired Word of God. I guarantee you, you've heard this as well as I have. You know, I don't know why there's not just one world church and why there's not just one everybody's together and, and, and people say, well, the fact that there's so many different denominations, so many different groups, so many different people who say different things, that's just an evidence that the Bible's not real. Actually, the opposite's just the case. Because if there was a one world church and everybody was united and everything was together, that would confirm the Bible is not the Word of God. Because Jesus said 2,000 years ago before the church launched that there would be true seeds planted, and in the same field, false seeds planted, and all over the world, there would be counterfeits popping up just like there's true popping up, and they would all be mixed together. So the reality is this, the reason that there's counterfeit Christians is because the enemy has done this, and it validates that what Jesus said is in fact the Word of God. They don't invalidate the Bible. They, in fact, validate the Bible. You can tell somebody, oh, the Bible says that. I knew that was going to happen because Jesus said it would happen 2,000 years ago. Just think about how providential God's word is. And so we see also the two harvests. What is the harvest here? The two different, uh, the, the separating at the harvest, the two different plants here. Matthew 13, 39 says the harvest is the end of the world. The end of the world there could be translated as the end of this present age. Uh, this is the end 
of this age, the final judgment when men stand before God and are judged. This specifically would speak at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Verse 30 tells us who the reapers are, or verse 39, I should say. He tells us the reapers are the angels. Verse 41, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels. So the angels are the ones who will reap the harvest. Now verse 40, just as tares are gathered and burned, Jesus likens this, friends, to what will happen exactly at the end of the age. Matthew 24, 31, which is an apocalyptic chapter, Jesus steps into eternity, into the future. And he says in verse 31 of Matthew 24, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. He goes on in verse 38 and says, for as in the days that were before the flood, and you need to pay close attention because I'm going to ask you a question that the early service missed like three times. I had to repeat it literally three or four times. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came. And what did the flood do? took them all away. So if you were taken away in the flood, is that a good thing? No, you wouldn't want to be taken away in the flood. That's judgment. You're taken away in judgment. So shall also the Son of Man be, the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be what? Taken and the other left. Do you want to be taken in that day? Okay, let's read that again. It says, not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man. Did the flood come and take them in judgment or in salvation? Judgment. Verse 40, then shall be two in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. In that day, do you want to be taken or left? I told him. I, I mean, I told him. I said. <laughs> I mean, early services watching online, they're like, I knew it. We weren't the only ones. We believe the Bible here, don't we? We do. So, so the, the flood came and took them in judgment. And, and, and what he's talking about here in verse 40 and 41 is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. One of the keys to understanding Matthew 24, that's, at the, that's not the rapture. That's talking about the seven year, at the end of the seven-year tribulation. When Christ comes the second time, called the revelation of Jesus Christ, his, the rapture is not the second coming. I've talked about this in the past. The second coming is different. The, the rapture, he comes in the clouds. The second coming, he comes to the earth. The rapture, he comes with his... The rapture, he comes for his saints. The second coming, he comes with his saints. But there's going to be a lot of people who get saved during the tribulation, especially the Jewish people. Romans 7, Revelation 7 talks about that, right? 144,000 Jews go around preaching. It's going to be a massive number of people that get saved. What's going to happen is when he comes back the second time, he's going to remove the lost from among the saved and then set up his kingdom on the earth. 
So when you read that in verse number 40, then shall two be in the field, one taken, the other left. The one taken is taken in judgment. The other that's left is left to enter into God's kingdom on earth. Verse 41, two shall be grinding the mill, one taken, the other left. Watch therefore, you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Now, verse 41, Christ will send his angels to do the work of separating the saved from the lost. The angels will do that. It is not the responsibility of Christians to inflict judgment upon the lost world. This was important because what, it, what happened when, when they were going to go into Samaria and like the Samaritans knew that Jesus' group was going to go to Jerusalem, they would not let Jesus' group come through Samaria. What did James and John say? Can we have a prayer meeting for these guys? And I'm really concerned for the Samaritans. Is that what they said? No, they're like, burn them up. Let them all die. Let's, let's separate the wheat from the tares now. You know, let's burn them up now. And did Jesus say, that's a great idea. Let them all die. Is that what he said? He said, you know not what spirit you are of. The, the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's life, but to save them. Judgment's not now. It's coming, but now's the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He's willing to turn the tear into wheat. And we must have the heart of Christ. We must have that same heart that doesn't seek judgment, but seeks salvation. Why is there so much tares? You know, they ask that question Didn't you sow good seed in the field? Why is there tares? That's an age-old question. You know what that question really is? If the world is good, if God, you're good, then why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so many false religions? Why is there so much injustice? Why is there so much wickedness? You know what the answer is? The enemy has done this. The enemy has done this. This is John 10.10, isn't it? The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, but I've come to give you life. The enemy has done this. Jesus came to restore. Satan came to destroy. And so every time in history that men have tried to hold the hand of judgment and presume to uproot error in just in, in a violent way, in a physically violent way, it's been a bloodbath. The Crusades of the Middle Ages were unbelievably brutal. There were those who, in the name of Christianity, slaughtered Muslims and Jews. How was that representing the Prince of Peace? They were deluded. They didn't understand this truth. In the Spanish Inquisitions, the Protestant Reformation, countless thousands of Christians were put to death because they would not submit to the dogma and authority of the Roman Catholic Church, imprisoned, tortured, and executed many of those Christians. Listen, God is not calling us to punish those who are not saved. He's calling us to see them saved. It's important to know that because the world is not getting better, is it? And sometimes as Christians, our patience runs out and you need to be careful that the spirit of James and John don't enter you, but rather the spirit of Christ is in you. The world is not the enemy. They're the mission field, right? You all believe that? <laughs> Make me, you're, you're like, I'm not answering anything anymore. I answered one time. I thought I had it right. And then he put me on the mark. You know, I'm not going to say a word again, preacher. If you do, I'll, I'll zap you with this. I'll get you right in the face. You know? 
Now look at verse 41. Now how, how does God define them? And I, I want you to see this. How does God define them? <clears throat> he doesn't define them in verse 41 like we would think he typically would. It says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and shall gather out of his, gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. He's removing them from his kingdom and them which do iniquity. He defines them as those who offend and do iniquity. You know, he doesn't define them as those who don't believe in Jesus. He doesn't define them who have not placed their faith in Christ. He defines unbelievers as those who offend and do or practice iniquity. Their life is defined by their sin. Now, why does he do that? Because whatever the root of your life is will be revealed by the fruit of your life. If you notice back in verse 26, he says... uh, But when the men slipped, verse 25, they sowed tares and went their way. But when the blade, that's the head of the grain, was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. What does that mean? It means the wheat and the tares are basically indistinguishable until the fruit comes. And the fruit on a wheat is white, and the fruit on the the grain on a tear is a small black seed. Another interesting comparison is when the wheat grows up, the, the, the weight of it will cause the wheat to bow. It sits like this. We have that picture maybe. It'll bow over. The, where, where the, uh, this gives you an idea. The wheat kind of bends over like this, where when a tear is fully ripened, it stands fully straight up and down. When you are a child of God, your life is bowed to the king. You live in submission to Christ as Lord. You, you have fruit because you've bowed to Him. And, and, and what happens is, uh, when you're not saved, you stand there in that pride of self, and, and, and it's your way, and it's what you think, and, and what I just think that God is, and you begin to be the definer of God instead of God of being the definer of you. And if you like fornication, then your God likes fornication. And if you like homosexuality, then your God is accepting of that. And if you like alcohol and some drugs, then, then your God's okay with that. And you create a God that defines, that's defined by your life, and basically your God looks like you instead of you being called to look like the real God. One is the seed of the enemy, and one is the seed of the true good sower. Which seed have you absorbed? And I can tell you this. Let me tell you. You know how you know which seed you've received? Just look at the fruit of your life. Is your life bowed over to Christ? Are you in submission to Him? Don't tell me you're saved if you will never get baptized. Don't tell me you're saved if you never obey God. Don't tell me you're saved if you live in disobedience to His clear commands. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 3, and 4, By this shall we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, he's a liar. It's just not true. It doesn't matter what you say. Your words are not the foundation of salvation. That's why Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but I'll say, I never knew you. Your life, the fruit of it will display the reality. I love the verse that was read today, Matthew 12, 33. Jesus said, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and the fruit corrupt. The tree is known by its fruit. Oh, generation of vipers, he says, how can you being evil speak good things? You can't. When my heart is 
messed up. My life is messed up. But when Christ is inside of me, the fruit of that reality will come out in me. In the previous parable, the first three soils produce no lasting fruit. Jesus makes this the focus of the parable. That fruit that is real and remaining shows that salvation is real and remaining. Look back in verse 23 of Matthew 13. At the end of that parable, I want you to see the first three are not saved. The hard soil didn't even receive the seed. The next two sprang up quick. They were superficial. They were worldly converts, but they were not true converts, and they never lasted. Both of them became offended and unfruitful. The third soil, the fourth soil is in verse 23. And I want you to see this. But he that receives seed in the good ground is he that, notice the word heareth, E-T-H. I know some of us don't like the ifs and all that stuff. But just know that that's a third person plural verb. Third person, uh, third person verb in the imperative in the Greek. What that means is it's, it's, it's something that you do and you continue to do. So, so they receive seed in the good ground, he that hears, not just hears, but heareth. It's, you would have to read like Young's literal translation to also get that reality. But it's, you, you continue to hear it and understandeth it. You don't just understand it once, you just continue to understand it. And you also bear fruit. You don't just bear fruit, you continue to bear fruit, beareth fruit. And bring if, you continue to bring forth fruit, some a hundredfold, sixty and thirty. It just keeps going. That's why true believers are known by true fruit. That's why when somebody says, oh, I'm saved. When did you get saved when I was six years old? Do you have any evidence of that? Is it, what's your life shown? Well, I prayed a prayer. Well, the Bible never asks that. You know, the Bible never says to look back to a time when you were saved. The Bible always says, if it was real then, it will be real now. Are you producing fruit? In the last year, did you produce fruit? Does the fruit of your life evidence that you're a child of God or a child of Satan? I can tell you before me or Leslie or go down the line here, before we were saved, you would look at us and be like, yeah, they're not saved. Isn't that right, Emily? I mean, we just go down the line. All this, we just say, is the fruit of my life saved? What before? I mean, if you went to school with me before I was saved and they were like, is Josh saved? They would have laughed. Josh, you kidding me? He was like the worst mouth in the school. Kids a mess. You went to the principal's office three times that one day. It was not a good time. You know, the worst call you ever get is, uh, we have contacted your father. I was like, please, electricity have gone out. Is there a chance? You know, trying to get, back then you didn't have cell phones, but you're like, brother, can you just unplug the, you know, reset it or something? This is, this is the lifestyle. And you need to know this. You need to know this. Those who are defined by sin and not by the Savior are not child, children of God. And in verse 42, look what the punishment would be. This is so serious. It says, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. How do we know that's real? How do we know the intensity of that? How do we know that this is just not superficial? He says, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I mean, furnace of fire, that is, that is an intense statement denoting the fierceness of the torment, wailing signifying the agony of the torment, and gnashing of teeth. That was a symbol of, they, they, they were in so much despair, they knew they would never be remedied from this. They are confined to this, and they know they're confined. Those who reject Christ rule in their life 
They stand erect in their life. They, they are not bowing to Christ. They will not have Christ to rule over them. They didn't want Christ in salvation. They won't have him. You know what eternal damnation is? It's giving people what they, what they wanted. You, you don't want his salvation, then you'll have damnation. You don't want forgiveness of sin, then you'll have condemnation of sin. You don't want forgiveness, then you'll have judgment. You don't want mercy, then you'll have none. You don't want Christ as Lord, then you won't have his salvation. You don't want him, you won't have him. And it'll be forever. And, and you need to understand that is coming. And how do we know it's real? Because I could take you to children's hospital today. I could drive you around the world and say, just look at the physical trauma of earth. That just is a small depiction of the reality of spiritual suffering that is coming. Sin produces consequence. And all of us are inflicted with Adam's sin and it has trickled down and the punishment that has been reaped by the world. As horrifying as hell is, as, as I could not put into words the, the horror of hell, the horror, it's beyond words. I could not also put into words the magnificent glory of heaven. It's beyond words. It's verse 43. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is coming. You, you are eternal. You need to know that. You have a spirit, every one of us. You are more than what's on the outside there. Praise God for that. Amen. We're more than our flesh. Uh, you, you will live forever somewhere. Believe me, you will live forever. In a thousand years from now, you will be in existence. You will have a clarity as much now, even more then than you do now. You will never pass from existence. Romans 8.18 tells us that in the glories of heaven are so wonderful that whatever suffering we go through on this earth, you can't even compare the two of how good heaven's going to be. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. How good is that place going to be? The Bible calls it paradise. Jesus called it paradise. And he closes with an appeal. He says, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let me finish with a couple applications. We're going to be done here very quick. First of all, I want to ask this. How do you apply this? I want to ask you, are you saved today? Do you know Christ? If you stood before God today and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Are you ready for that? There's religious deception everywhere. Does the fruit of your life reveal that you belong to Christ? Who is the Lord of your life? Who, who rules in your life? One man wrote, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and you see me not. You call me the way, yet you walk me not. You call me life, but desire me not. You call me wise, but follow me not. You call me fair, but you love me not. Eternal, but seek me not. Gracious, but trust me not. Just, but you fear me not. If I condemn you, Blame me not. What are you doing with Christ? Is he a name you know? Satan would be as happy for you to be a member of Lighthouse going to hell than he would you be a pagan drunkard, sex trafficker or whatever. He, he, would, he would be as happy to send you to hell from the pew than he would from, from some gutter. Beware of deception. There's two seeds being planted in the world. Two seeds. Which one have you received? And you know which one you receive because of what it's coming out of your life. The Bible made clear, friends, that the world is on a downward spiral. We cannot let the world become the enemy 
We live in an age of grace. We live in an age of grace. And, and in this day, we need to see that the world needs the gospel. We need to be busy about the Father's business. Some of us have family and friends that are not saved. We need to take the gospel to them. We have these little cards. You can, you, every one of us, before you leave, when you're heading out by the door, they're up on the wall, little packs of them. You can grab a few of those, put them in your wallet, your purse, your pocket, wherever you go. Invite someone out. But then on the back, there's a little, little QR code. You can say, hey, can you take a moment? Sit down with them and watch that together. Share it with your friend, and, and it's just going through the gospel. And I put together a little gospel presentation so that people could hear the gospel and know that. Friends, the age is coming to an end. The, the, the world's not going to last forever. You feel that winding down. The reality of things are not going to go on forever. And you need, to, you need to know that. You need to be busy about the Father's business. Don't get caught up in everything and the crazy of the world. We need to get caught up in what God wants us to do. Share Christ. Love the lost. The Bible says there's only one of two places people go. Matthew 25, 46 says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. You're going to spend forever somewhere. Make sure that you're safe today.